You are listening to The Depression Session at 99.1 FM Downtown Radio. Each week, we'll have a new guest tell the story of their depression. I'm your host, Laura Milkins, and thank you for joining us on The Depression Session. Just a note for my listeners, I want to make sure you understand that this is a show about depression, and some of the content can be triggering, so please take care of yourself if something on the show brings up difficult feelings, and seek professional help if you need it. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Depression Session on Downtown Radio. Today we have with us in the studio Melissa. Melissa is a wellness educator. We'll be right back with Melissa, but first let's talk about stigma. This has been on my mind this week for a couple of reasons. Students confide in me about what they're experiencing and the shame they feel about it or the reactions they get that can be positive or negative. And so this is the end of the semester. At this point, I I know everybody really well. I feel really close to them, and they have been telling me things about their experience. So it's on my mind in that way and how much people judge themselves and are judged by people. And then in addition to that, I had the last meetup session was actually on stigma and depression. And it was really great to just have an open conversation about, like, who do you tell? How do you know who you can trust? And I have moved really, I, I went from zero to 60 with that. I started by like not telling anybody, not identifying it. We talked about that a little bit before we started the show. Not identifying it, then moving into like realizing I'm pretty depressed and then maybe really depressed and then telling a few close friends and then telling a few more people and then going on the radio <laughs> and being like, I'm depressed and I think it should be destigmatized. And that really is the purpose behind this show. In psychology today, the stigma of mental illness is making us sicker. Why mental illness should be a public health priority by Michael Friedman, PhD. I'll read a couple things from the article, but one of the things that struck me is the self-stigmatizing. And I think that's what I was doing. I think it's what a lot of people do. Or even we just assume that people won't be open to it. Or the few times you open up, they're like, well, what you should do is, or you know what you could do, or if you'll just, and it's those just, just do this or just do that. That works for me. And although it comes from a place of kindness, it's, it makes you feel like you're deficient, or maybe you have tried all those things and none of them have worked, and it just doesn't feel nice. <laughs> it's like, well, then I'm a failure. <laughs> so anyway, I'll read a little bit from the article from Psychology Today. Research suggests that the majority of people hold negative attitudes and stereotypes toward people with mental illness. From a young age, children will refer to others as crazy or weird. These terms are used commonly throughout adulthood as well. Often the negative stereotypes involve perceptions that people with mental illness are dangerous. This perception is fueled by media stories that paint violent perpetrators as mentally ill without providing the context of the broad spectrum of mental illness. This bias is not limited to people who are either uninformed or disconnected from people with mental illness. In fact, healthcare providers and even some mental health professionals hold these same stereotypes. And a little later in the article, they talk about what can be done. Overall, increased awareness is probably one of the most important things that can be done to counteract stereotypes. For years, groups such as the National Alliance for Mentally Ill and Rosalind Carter Foundation have fought to reduce stigma. More recently, Molly Knight Raskin, who has received a Rosalind Carter Fellowship for Mental Health Journalism, is developing a movie, Still We Rise, to bring awareness to the epidemic of global mental illness. Knight Raskin told me, To me, there is only one thing standing in the way of our ability to care for mentally ill people in this country and around the world. Stigma. 
the self-stigmatizing part really hits home because I know I do that. And I know I have even done it to friends where I don't mean to, but, you know, refer to them as crazy or, and sometimes I mean it in an affectionate way, but it's still not nice. And so I'm trying to be better about that. And then also the part of having the openness and having the space for people to talk about it. This whole year of telling my story on the radio and having people tell their stories has helped me in my depression immensely to the point where I don't really feel depressed in the way that I felt before. I might have moments of depression, but I'm not stuck in it. And I want to thank all of you, my listening audience, for having been part of that journey. And I hope that it's helped you as well. So I'll just close with a quote by Glenn Close. What mental health needs is more sunlight, more candor, more unashamed conversation about illness that affect not only individuals, but their families as well. So today we have with us in the studio, Melissa. Melissa is a wellness educator. Hello, Melissa, and welcome to the depression session. Hi, Laura. Thanks. So what's new with you? What's going on in your world? All right. Well, I can happily say that I've had a huge shift in my life in the, in the last couple months, really feeling better consistently, mm-hmm. being able to more easily get out of the bed in the morning and then stay out of the bed has been a really big deal. And so I've learned to celebrate and I'm super excited about that. That's awesome. I know what you mean because I've been waking up not jumping out of bed, but I'm getting out of bed and feeling at least ready to take on the day. And it's huge. Right. Yeah. I mean, it for me, it is, which you'll hear about soon. But celebrating the baby steps is is a big deal. And uh, overcoming the, the inability to do so and then being able to count the times that I actually celebrate, I got up. I, I made it to my appointment without coffee or <laughs> something like that, you know, it's, it's huge. And, and I'm spreading the word about that. Very cool. I don't know if I could do it without coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I have learned to have some days without coffee and some days with coffee and then being able to see which part of me is attached to the idea of self, who I am actually versus who I am with coffee. Mm-hmm. Instead of like only assuming this is who I am all the time, I actually can can be more flexible when I'm just drinking tea or water because I'm stepping up to the plate of a challenge and it's more of a game. I'm like getting back into my my kid self and, and celebrating that. Awesome. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. So <laughs> Melissa, tell us the story of your depression. It all started when when I was four. I mean, that was like when I remember waking up and thinking, I don't remember anything before this day, and I will remember everything for the rest of my life. And it was like, it was a really big week as, I mean, it could have been a year, but for a four-year-old, <laughs> like in my memory, it was a week. I remember thinking that, and which is a big deal. And I remember thinking, I know I want to be an artist. Yeah, like I have, I have all of these dreams. And I remember telling my parents that I wanted to be an artist and I knew exactly who I was. And that was immediately shot down as like, you can't be an artist because they don't make money. And then 
in tears, I ran to my mother. My father said that. In tears, I ran to my mother and said, he says I can't be an artist. What the heck? <laughs> she said, well, yeah, I mean, he's right. You're not going to make any money, but, you know, maybe you can do it as a hobby, which there's no way you can tell somebody who's an artist that that's a hobby. So that sort of unfolded into all of these observations. As a child, I, I started to understand that I was seen as a risk taker, which then I identified myself as a risk. And so my depression, which normally would keep me isolated and bitter, then turned into a pile on of also having anxiety because I feared for everyone else's sake that I might make them upset. And then that just kept piling up. Basically, like, go forward into like high school, let's say, right? I was still really wanting to secretly be an artist, but that wasn't unfolding for me at all. Too many, any any of the teachers that I had, any of the art teachers that I had were really uh, not willing to show my work. <laughs> like everyone else's was getting displayed. And then I had a teacher who I was asking to help me to apply for a, a, an art program at, at another high school where you would be commuted to, to that school and then you could do deeper, more fulfilling projects. She said that uh, I should. She said that I should decide to go a different route, and that she wasn't going to help me apply. So it just—I think that was when everything seriously set in. My parents got divorced, and so I was like just thinking I was really alone. So then, you know, this is the typical exploration of the early twenties. The thing is that after having three kids and not getting what I needed in a marriage and feeling like this marriage was not going to hold up to what the commitment was, I kept telling my story over and over again. All of these things happened to me. And one day I realized that I had been telling my story for like a year and a half straight. I sat on everyone's couch over and over and over again telling the same story. And that just really was alarming to me that I was surrounded by all these people I loved and I did not I did not blame them for me telling my story over and over again but I knew that if they couldn't tell me to stop telling my story <laughs> that I would need to 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 get out of it because it is healthy and that's what I'm doing here today and I believe in it but I don't believe in showing up to do that every day for a year and a half because it wasn't helping me to be a better mother that's for sure so I decided to move out to Arizona and I've done a lot of like what people would call like the work, you know, like the self-development, the really looking in, but then also looking out from a new perspective and finding this understanding from my core that these things aren't happening to me and that I can challenge myself because I love a challenge, right? I love to creatively problem solve. And so I found that where initially I thought because I wasn't a playful child that I don't know how to play. I've just learned that I I play in a different way than what would be like the norm. So actually challenging myself to not have coffee or to see... I love psychology and I love tripping the mind and see what, seeing what happens. And so waking up and having decaf coffee instead and seeing if like, if I can, if I can act the way that I want to act and not feel like I'm all revved up on coffee, those sorts of things. But I also, when I moved out here, I 
was going to school at the University of Arizona full-time to get my Bachelor of Fine Arts in Studio Art. I really decided to, while I was doing the work, make all of my work about this huge transition. So for two years straight, my story became this thing that I was working through. And I found that a lot of people were relating to my work in ways that I guess I always knew could happen, but I had never allowed to happen. And suddenly, where I used to hide behind my work and just kind of push it out there, like, oh, I'm a visual artist. I'm not a performer. (laughs) I really am a performer in front of my work. And I love to talk about what my work brings out. So I like to get down into the nitty gritty because vulnerability, in my opinion, is so rich and pure of heart that it's really beautiful. And so when I, I'm fine being vulnerable because I've been vulnerable my whole life. So when I show up in a room telling people I don't mind being the first vulnerable person, here's my art and letting them kind of go with it and they they can't help but feel things and say things and then we go with that and the ebb and flow then isn't completely directed by me they become the artist and then I become the artist and then back and forth and then building off of that and other relationships in life these days I found wellness through essential oils and other alternative therapies like floating and massage and acupuncture, all of these things that I realized I got to a place like at the beginning of the year where I did hit rock bottom, even though I'm saying all these things started to go up. (laughs) It was like climbing Mount Everest for real every day, like being stuck in my bed and, you know, not leaving the house for four days. And anyway, I ended up developing seizures because the chemical levels in my body just became so toxic. My body was just like, get with the program or get out. So I was really having suicidal ideations, and I realized either I'm going to check myself in somewhere or I'm going to do this, like, all the way. So I picked the place that my sister was supposed to check me into. (laughs) If I couldn't handle myself in the next four months, I gave myself, like, a four-month window. And all of those therapies were, like... Basically, the way that I raised myself up. You know, they say it takes a village to raise a child. At that time, I didn't have any words that I could use. Like, literally, I was down to like one or two word sentences. I was just not functioning. And I had this realization, it takes a village to raise a child. I need a whole village. And as soon as I owned that and started floating and going to all of these like acupuncture and everything, everything started to open up for me. And so... Where originally I was just trying to talk through everything, I realized that I had gotten so stuck in my head that it became toxic. And once I got back into my body and started getting everything to flow and started really focusing on celebrating these things that I was doing, today I got up. Today I made a phone call. Like, who wants to make a phone call when they're depressed? That's incredibly difficult. (laughs) I would rather just hang up and throw it across the room and break it. No more phone calls. So the days when I didn't do that, I would clearly celebrate. And thanks for letting me share my story. It's really thanks for exciting. sharing your story. It's wonderful. <laughs> thanks. I, I relate to a lot in there. <laughs> <laughs> cool. 
especially when you were talking about the being in bed and then trying to celebrate the things you do do rather than looking at the things you're not doing. That to actually acknowledge like, yeah, today I called someone back because I spent a lot of time saying, I didn't get back to this person and I can't call that person. I just can't do it. And my mom probably thinks I'm dead. And <laughs> and that it's it, to, to decide to celebrate. It's really beautiful. Thanks. Yeah. I think for the first couple of years when I was really focusing on my, my artwork and in going that route, I really shut myself off from making any phone calls. I don't think I called my mom or my dad like ever. And my, I live with my sister. That was just part of the decision I made when coming out here. So she would be calling mm-hmm. and then they would call her and she would hand me the phone and I'm like, no, nah, this isn't fair. <laughs> this is like, so I need to have like an office or a bubble. But a studio. I, yeah. <laughs> and I, I really enjoyed my studio for the, the two years that I had at the U of A. But ultimately, I'm really grateful that I did put myself in that position where my sister could hand me the phone. I didn't want to let her down. You know, I didn't want to tell her, no, I don't want the phone, because I did do that. And the days that I did that were, were terrible, because she was confused. She's never been depressed, you know, <laughs> like, which is fantastic. <laughs> May that always be said. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, I mean, she doesn't, she doesn't know. The other thing I really related to was the getting in your body. And another thing I, I don't think I've ever talked about on the show, but my friend and I had started movement school where we were doing authentic movement classes with people and it really is that practice of getting in your body but we would also practice ourselves and authentic movement is is just very much we, we often you know close the eyes so that you're not you're not in your head in that thinking seeing way and then usually we'd like give an exercise or like we imagine or visualize something. But we would do the practice ourselves. Just every week we'd go and do authentic movement, just the two of us, so that we were kind of on it when we were working with people. And it was so useful. And it's weird. So you just let your body move however it wants to move. And I would get to these moments over and over again where like I'd be apologizing to my neck for having to hold up my body all the time. You know, that's where I'd end up. I mean, you could do vocalize, you can do anything with authentic movement. And then so often I was lost at sea and I'd become the foghorn trying to help myself find the way. So I was both lost and the beacon. So these amazing things would happen that were very artistic. I'm a performance artist, so like that's my starting point with everything. But it also just was getting in my body because in depression, when you're talking about talking your story to everybody. When I find myself doing that, anytime that I find myself stuck in a story, if I find that I'm telling it to people over and over again, it is that moment of check-in, like you have where you go, wait a minute. Now it's a burden. Now it's something else. It's like a repetitive, unhealthy thing. There's some moment where telling your story goes from being healthy and healing to being an illness. Yeah, completely stuck. Right. And so like as soon as you can start moving and getting in touch with that, then everything that was once stuck starts to move and it feels not so heavy anymore. I know I do these activities with art students where one of the things that I learned through my work is, you know, this idea of what is a mark, you know, and how can marks be made? 
how do we find more marks? Mm. Like once we've exhausted the ones that we've had and we're just sick of it. This idea of sounds and body tracking, if your heart could make a mark, what would it make, right? If your toe could make a mark, what would it make? Not just visually, but actually closing your eyes and imagining for long enough to feel it. And then... And then telling your hand a couple times, this is what it looks like, this is what it looks like, and then making it. Like people start to question then what their typical behaviors are on a regular basis. If I have to walk somewhere, why not walk a new way? Because it really does readjust everything and makes us light again and joyful. Because life, life becomes drudgery so easily in our culture and not play. Right. I even had a moment when I, when I finish a big project, I always need to play. I need a downtime, like really, really, really need it. <laughs> yeah. And I, I was talking to a friend of mine after one of my projects and, and I said, I'm just playing right now. I just, I need to, I don't know what the next thing will be. I just need to be carefree and play. And she's like, oh, that sounds great. She's like, I want to do that. I'm like, great. And at the end of the conversation, I said, well, remember to play. She says, yeah, I'm working on it. <laughs> and I just looked at her and we started laughing, working on playing like it's just that's (laughs) how our minds work yeah exactly I know I've I've really learned since the beginning of the year to really intentionally set aside the time that's for me and to just own it whatever it is that comes up that is the thing that I need to do whether it's meditate or whether it's draw whether it's paint start a new project break out an old one whatever it is just go with it because it's going to unlock something for me that's something I really, really miss being a full-time professor. I just work all the time. And this semester I decided to go into it with a sense of ease. That's the word I have in my mind, just ease. Mm-hmm. But I can work tons of hours, but I'm, I love what I'm doing. And I want to bring more play into it. I don't know how to find the space for that in academia. It's, it's something I struggle with a lot of like, making sure that my class feels safe and like they know what the rules are and that they have some sort of outline of what we're doing, but also make it fun and playful. And I think they have fun and they play and I do a little bit, but I get stuck in the grid work of what I'm supposed to be doing. I know ease has been a theme word for me too. And also grace. I think those go with the ease for depression and grace for the anxiety. That's a big one. Anxieties. I I almost wonder if there's anyone who struggles with depression who doesn't also struggle with anxiety right yeah yeah well I know it's it's been an interesting process I went the first essential oil class that I went to I ended up I was totally having a panic attack because I was in a room full full of six people (laughs) that I had never met before and I went with my sister and she was outside watching the kids she said we were going to split the class because the kid's going to be inside I was so mad. Like, why do I have to do this first shift? And the woman who was teaching the class ended up passing around this essential oil that she was saying was really great for attachment and bonding. I love psychology since I was four. (laughs) Since that time. That's what all my artwork is about. And so she's like saying all these key words that I'm like, oh, this is great. But I was still like not bonding with anyone around me of course and then she passed this oil around and I put it on my wrist and then I rubbed it on my temples and within 10 seconds I felt all of the jittery nerves like 10 cups of coffee worth just wash down to my feet then the next thing that happened was like I'm looking around the room trying to figure out if anybody else is feeling what I'm feeling <laughs> like is anybody else freaking out and no, I'm not And they're all just listening to the teacher, and I'm totally not. And then all of a sudden, I started smiling. 
Like my parasympathetic nervous system kicked in and I'm smiling and I'm trying to figure out, am I happy? Like, did somebody say something funny? No. And then all of a sudden I realized it's joy. And that was the first time that I'd ever felt joy in my life that I could remember. And I thought, it's in there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's in there. I made that. (laughs) That reminds me of a friend of mine who struggles with anxiety a lot and had never done medication and was going to go to graduate school and was like, I probably need a helper to just get me there, Mm -hmm. if nothing else. Went to their psychologist or psychiatrist and got a medication. Mm -hmm. I went to their doctor and got a medication. And they said that they were driving down the road and just doing something and suddenly realized they felt funny. And they were trying to figure out what's that feeling. Something felt funny. And suddenly they realized, oh, I don't feel anxious. I have never felt not anxious. Never, never, like in their entire life. Right. And in that moment, they were going, wow, that's what it feels like to not be anxious. This is fantastic. (laughs) Right? I know I leaped out of my seat and went outside and called all of my friends that struggle with depression because I could not stay in that classroom anymore. I was too happy. (laughs) I was like spilling out everywhere. I was about to start bawling and then people would totally freak out. (laughs) That's just how it is. So, yeah, I'm like calling all my friends, like flagging my sister. I'm I'm done. I'm not going in. You can go in if you want. Like, I don't care anymore. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, it was super cool. And then the last thing I wanted to pull out of there was, like, being a mom. What's that like? You know, how do you work that in with the play and the depression? You know, (laughs) it is, like, this amazing artwork that just goes on forever. Because I just have so many ways that I look at it, right? Lately, I have been trying to undo all of this time that I spent away from them mentally, because even if I was physically present, I was probably crying or really upset or not even present enough to pay attention when they're telling me, mom, this thing happened, you know, and it's going really well. What I'm doing is basically incorporating them into all of these new habits, like lighting sage before bed and listening to Reiki music and meditating Like we meditate together and they'll ask me sometimes, you know, hey, mom, can we meditate before we read? Or we do like other fun things that are just like that are more like chance oriented because I spent so much of my life feeling like these things were happening to me or that there wasn't anything I could do about it. And sort of studying through all these different cultures like the I Ching and different things where you can pick a card or throw things out and and know that what you thought might be the case two minutes ago might not be. And Mm -hmm. from a kid's perspective, like, you know, they'll, they'll believe in all kinds of things. And, and those little resets with mom as like my playful time, I think is, is developing this dualistic relationship that I wanted initially, which is being a parent, but then also being a respectful partner in life. That I can be at that level and I can also guide. And they're watching me lift myself up. And we can actually have those conversations, even though my youngest one is six, you know, in six-year-old terms. Remember last year when mommy was crying a lot and now I'm not and I've worked hard and we're giving a lot more hugs. And I can say motherhood is fantastic now. 
That's beautiful. Thanks. Well, on that note, I think that's a perfect way to end the show. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for being on the depression session. Glad to be here. I want to mention again that if you found some of the content of today's episode triggering, please seek professional help and call 911 if you feel like hurting yourself or others. I'm not a licensed therapist, and this show and the station are not endorsing any remedies or products. The purpose of this show is to destigmatize depression through storytelling. You can find a link to mental health services on downtownradio.org on the About KTDT page. To listen to the podcast, or if you're interested in being on the show, contact us at www.thedepressionsession.com. You've been listening to The Depression Session on Downtown Radio Tucson with music by Septa Helix. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at The Depression Session Podcast. Thank you. You're listening to KTDTLP Tucson, Downtown Radio 99.1 FM.